when we found out that Nada was going to be able to join us here up in Minnesota, we thought it'd be fun to take him fishing. And so I decided we want to try to go fishing where there's fish. So we took him to a lake where we've caught some big fish in the past. And if you were to look at this lake and not know the lake, if you were to look at the spot where we often find the big ones, you might say there's no way you catch big fish in that lake, in that spot. And Brad, I'll try not to give away the spot. Keith, wherever you are. But we do have some photographic evidence that there are big fish in that spot. Here's from yesterday, some of our pictures um, of some of the fish that, that we caught yesterday. So there are big fish in that spot. Sometimes things that sound too good to be true are true and they are good. They're both of those things. Sometimes things that sound too good to be true are both good and true. And I want to open today. We've been in a series about Genesis. It's wrapping up today. But I want to fast forward. I want to show you one of these passages that just sounds like it could be too good to be true. It's a passage that so many of us hang on to. It's Romans 8.28. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Romans 8.28. If you don't have a Bible at home today, we'd love for you to go home with one free. Each and every week, we keep a stack of them there in the back. And if the only Bible you have is electronic, I'd encourage you to also get a hard copy too because you can do things like we're about to do later here in the service with it. It's good to have both. Here is a passage that has brought hope to millions of people over the course of thousands of years. Let's take a look at this. It's Romans 8, 28, and it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. All right, if you did open up your Bible, keep a bookmark or a finger there, because we're going to come back to this in just a minute. I'm going to show you something. But first, I want to ask a a question. What if this is true? What if this is true? What if there's a God who can work all things, all things for good? What if he can work our greatest mistakes for good? What if he could make the things that people have done to us that we didn't deserve? What if he could make that for good? What if he could take our greatest moments that we've had And bring lasting good out of them. What if this is true? What if it's not wishful thinking? What if it's not just a way to cope in a fallen world? What if this is really true? Here's the question I'd like you to to start with as we start this, our last week of this 11-week series we've had in Genesis. Is the good news too good to be true? Or could it be true? For real. Is the good news too good to be true? All right, here's that thing that I want to show you. And one of the reasons why Genesis is so important, so foundational to everything that comes after it. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Everything that follows is anchored to this. All right, so with a hand or a finger or a bookmark in Romans 8.28, go all the way back to the beginning to Genesis 1.1. And may I present to you, all of this testifies to that verse. This whole unfolding story that unfolds across generations and continents, all of this testifies to what we just read. That there is a God who can work all things, all things, all things for good. It all testifies to that, to that. Well, and again, as I mentioned earlier, this is true not just of our shining moments. It's true also of our mistakes and those bad things that others have done to us. God can bring good out of all 
of it. Well, when we opened our Genesis series, we opened, Pastor Jason opened with an endgame metaphor, that movie that a couple people have seen over the last, you know, several months, right? Avengers Endgame. You could watch, he said, that Avengers Endgame as a standalone movie, but if you watch what comes before, it is so much richer. If you learn the origin stories of the characters from the beginning, if you, if you see that there's series-wide themes that are introduced for the first time, and you're like, oh, wow. And if you watch as challenges are overcome, and you're moved by the price that was paid, if you do that, then the last movie in the series is a lot richer. It's a lot richer. Well, this summer, we've been working our way through Genesis, and today's the final week in that series. Everything that flows and follows Genesis is so much richer. Everything that comes after is so much richer if you know about the origins, if you know about the themes, if you've seen and read the challenges and looked at the price that people paid. And of all these themes, all these things you're going to find, nothing you'll find in Genesis is more important than this theme that God is good. That God is good. In the beginning of Genesis, at the beginning of time, God goes to work, and his work is good. Look at all these references to good, his good work, just in Genesis chapter 1. Here are some of the references. Genesis 1.10, Genesis 1.12, Genesis 1.18, Genesis 1.21, Genesis 1.25. It's repeated in all of those places, and God saw it was what? It was good. It was good. God does good work work. He brought light from darkness. He brought order from disorder. He brought beauty and life from ugliness and death. And before he was done with his good work, he created people. He created people, people who bear his image. And then he empowered people with the freedom to make choices. And he invited us, he invited humanity to join him in his good work. God's empowered us. He's empowered us. The language is strong. It means like to rule, to rule in his place, to be his rulers, his representatives on earth. And we're commissioned to reflect his character as we do, to make wise decisions as we do, to bring light into darkness, to bring order from chaos, to bring beauty and life where there's ugliness and death. And we're to do all this, not just as independent agents, but under the gracious rule of God himself as he leads and directs us. We're to steward these things. All right, well, earlier in the series, we saw God isn't just a God who does good work. He's also a God who sees. And one of my aha moments in this series was when I went back to that same phrase that we had on the screen, and I just highlighted a different word. Then that same phrase is repeated over and over again. God saw it was good. He saw it was good. He saw it was good. Oh, yeah, he saw it was good. God is a God who sees, and that's significant. He also sees when we make mistakes. He sees when we undo what he has done. He sees what, when we choose darkness instead of light. He sees when we choose chaos instead of order. He sees when we choose ugliness and death instead of beauty and life. He sees when we blame one another instead of looking at ourselves. He sees when we attack one another. He sees when we take what was good and we make it toxic. And because he sees what we do with his world we read that there was this moment of rest he had when all was good. And then what did he have to do after the seventh day? He got back to work. Stepping into our mess and bringing good from the not good that we bring with everywhere we go. There's a place to write this down in your notes too. God is restoring the good. 
He's restoring the good. He's still at work. He's restoring the good. And he invites us to join him in his good work. And if you, if you still have your Bible in front of you, try this. Try, try taking and feeling the difference in thickness between Genesis chapters 1 through 4 and 5 through 50. 5 through 50, we start to see how he's bringing about his good. He's bringing his good through a specific family line. And for the last 10 weeks, we've been looking at that family line, at least most of the last 10 weeks, and that is a very dysfunctional family line. Can I get an amen? It is as dysfunctional. We didn't go into this series with like, okay, we're going to point out the dysfunction every week, but every week we were presented with, okay, you know, how did we tell these stories in Sunday school, right? There's some really, really broken stuff, broken stuff. But we've seen that God doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on broken people. He's working through our brokenness. He didn't give up on them. He hasn't given up on you or me. And as we near the end of the book of Genesis, there's two half-brothers that start to take center stage. Two half-brothers. Their names are Joseph and Judah. Now, if you just do a quick superficial reading, you might come away with the impression that Judah, he's the bad boy, Joseph, he's the good boy. And you might also come away to the, with the conclusion that Judah's bad choices lead to bad consequences, and Joseph's good choices lead to good consequences. But with a show of hands, how many know it's not that simple? It's not that simple. And I encourage you, if you want, just even write down in your notes Genesis 37 through 50 and look at these two and look at how complicated all of this is and look at Joseph's bad not tactful decisions. And look at the good that Judah does later. It's just broken. It's messed up. But you've got two people at the end of the day who are both broken people. They're both living in a broken world. And in both cases, God is at work doing good in and through their lives. So with the short time we've got left, let's dive in. If you have your Bibles, let's look at Genesis 38. And we're going to read um, 24 through 25 in just a minute. But what we've got here in Genesis 38, Genesis 38 talks about an event and the surrounding fallout from something that Judah did. And then in 39, right after that, you've got a very contrasting account with Joseph. They're there back to back. I don't think that's by accident. All right, really quickly, Genesis 38, here's the backstory. Judah was son number four of six from a woman named Leah. And at this point in his life, Judah had five more half-brothers from three different mothers. Two of the moms were sisters. The other two moms were servants of the sisters. And I don't think we've pointed this out yet. Did we see here how these, sis, these servants of the sisters were told, not asked, they were told to be surrogates and weren't even given the dignity of naming the children that they brought forth into the world. This is... So broken. This is what Judah's brought into. He's brought into this. A very, very broken family. And Judah continued those family patterns. In the verses leading up to Genesis 38, 24, Judah's oldest son dies because he's so wicked, the Bible says. And Judah then gives his oldest son's widow, because I guess you could do that. He gave the oldest son's widow to his second son. After son number two dies because of his wickedness, Judah, Judah promises to give Tamar, his daughter-in-law, his third son as a husband. <laughs> Woohoo! 
yay, and it goes downhill from there. You think you're at the bottom of the hill, and it goes downhill from there. Thinking that her father-in-law might back out of his promise to give her the third-string son, Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute. She puts herself in Judah's path, evidently knowing that Judah is going to call upon her services. Her plan works. Judah thinks she's a prostitute. He solicits her services and she gets pregnant just as she hoped. How tragic is that? That that was her hope. That this poor woman finds herself in a situation where that's the best she can hope for that at least I can have a son, someone to care for me in that time, that place, someone that can care for me, even if it comes from my father-in-law. I have to prostitute myself to, to, and deceive to do this. You know? Why do we do series like we did last fall on human trafficking? Because millions of women around the world have to choose sometimes between do I starve to death or do I sell my body? Do I feed my kids or do I practice chastity. You know, what a horrible place to be in. Do we live in a broken world? We live in an absolutely broken world. Are things all fixed? No, no, they are. They're they're not. What, What a sad situation. All right. Well, in this broken world, we have decisions that we can make. You know, what do we do in this broken world? We live in it. Do we contribute to the brokenness? Maybe even wear it with a badge of pride? Or do we ask bigger, more important questions about what we could do to make things better, to join God in his work. All right, let's look at the text and let's see how Judah does not do that until the very end. Genesis 38, 24 to 25 says this, after all those things unfolded, about three months later, Judah doesn't know she's pregnant. Three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. How does Judah keep a straight face on, on that one, right? Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be what? They're going to burn her to death. Judah's okay with that. Now, I'm going to translate into slightly different words, um, the words that follow here, but still capture the same meaning. So as Tamar is being brought out, she says, yeah, so the guy who got me pregnant, he owns these things. And Judah, they're yours. Those are your things. Now the story appears. It appears to be following the storyline that continues to repeat itself to this day where someone judges someone else and they don't stop and reflect at all. They just attack, they silence, they do whatever they can to attack, 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 attack and not look at themselves to see if maybe they also have something that they've contributed to the mess, to the brokenness, if maybe they have blind spots. We call this hypocrisy. It is something that Jesus of Nazareth called out in others, and he specifically warned us that this can happen to us, that we can become hypocrites too. And I want to add something that wasn't there in the 915 service, and that is to warn you ahead of time of something that's coming. Because I turned a corner, I think, too abruptly as I saw people's faces, and I started to feel the weight of, oh, We're not just talking about Judah here, are we? Because it sure is easy to point fingers at Judah right now, isn't it? And go, you dirtbag. One of the things about the living word of God is if you are sincere when you go to it, all of us, all of us, 
can see that we're broken people too and we're contributing to the brokenness. All right? So just know that that's coming, but also know this. There won't be any fingers coming like this. If anything, there's just going to be hands going like this. Yep, that's me. That's me. All right? All right. I haven't gotten my daughter-in-law pregnant. So just, not that. I'm talking just broader, okay? Broader, broader. All right? Well, here's, here's where I started on that journey that I evidently, I turned a little too abruptly. Not because anyone said anything, but you just see it in people's faces. One of the reasons, all right, I'm going way beyond what I need to here, but just so you know, one of the reasons we think live teaching is so important for us, we're not saying against anything when people do video and stuff. I think it really is helpful for pastors to see people's faces, you know, so just for what it's worth. Okay, so here we go. Um, if you keep an eye on pop culture, if you keep an eye on pop culture, you saw a vivid example of what we're talking about with hypocrisy not too long ago. There's a show called The Bachelorette where the tables are turned upside down on a story that Pastor Dan um, unpacked last week. The story that he told from the Bible last week was you've got two women and their servants who are competing for the attention of their husband. In The Bachelorette, that's upside down. You've got a couple dozen guys competing for the attention of a single woman. This year, one of the men who self-identified as a Christian confronted the bachelorette about some kind of fantasy date that involved an overnight in a windmill that this woman could choose to go on. He confronted her about that. And the whole thing blew up to the kind of TV that the producers long for. I saw one like 20 minute clip of the ending of the bachelorette kind of season ish. I don't know how exactly close it was to them, but, but um, they, 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 they had the, the people in the, in the after show kind of talking like, Oh, the, these, these like hosts and stuff. Oh, I just, I'm so ready to be done with this drama. Like, you are not, you liar. <laughs> You're like, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. This was gold to have this whole, all this drama happen, right? All this drama about this windmill and this guy and all this stuff. It was fact they were so excited because they were, even, they were able to merch this thing. And one of the things that started popping up is people started selling these t-shirts with windmills on them, and it says, Jesus still loves me. Well, I went online, I, I went to Amazon.com, and I'm not making this up. I, this is a cut and paste, word for word, typo for typo, of one of was underneath the ads for one of these shirts that had a windmill that says, Jesus still loves me on it. It said this, as they were trying to sell this, market these shirts to people. They said, don't have sex in a windmill without this cool t-shirt. Funny t-shirt in says, Jesus still loves me in an Amsterdam windmill picture. Great Christian shirt for your bachelor, bachelorette party. All right, let's talk a little bit about the messaging here. If you sleep in a windmill with someone you're not married to, does Jesus still love you? Yes. Let's keep going. What if you sleep with that person because you think she's a prostitute? Does Jesus still love you? Yeah, yes. What if you know that the person sleeping with you is your father-in-law, but you've disguised yourself as a prostitute? Does Jesus still love you? Yes. See where this is going? <laughs> what if you give your servant without her permission to a man that you're married to with the hopes that she will get pregnant with a child that you'll consider your own so that you can increase your status, does Jesus still love you? Yes. Is Jesus still love you a very, very important question? Yes. Are there other important questions that we should be asking? Yes. 
including the question, what does loving Jesus look like? The one who first loved us. What does that look like? Now, these shirts, as I understand them, started as a reaction to the guy who identified as Christian but wasn't acting like Jesus. A guy who was as quick to jump to judgment as Judah was. But is it possible to see something that isn't right and to be blind to your own blindness as you call it out? Yes. Is it possible to dishonor God while you're pointing fingers at people who are dishonoring God? Yes. When Judah, this is, this is to his credit, in a very broken situation, to his credit, when Judah says, okay, what? My daughter-in-law is pregnant. Let's burn her. When she reveals that she's, well, he's, when he, she's revealed that he's the baby daddy, to Judah's credit, he doesn't attempt to blame her. He doesn't attempt to silence her voice. He doesn't continue with the burning. What he actually says is, she's more righteous than I am. She's more righteous than I am. When there is pride, pain will follow. When there's humility, humility, there's always hope. Always hope. And, and if we were to be in a small group and it was safe, we could all share stories about our own windmill t-shirts, right? Because every person in this room, we've got a closet full of them. Every one of us do of those times where we've done things, whether knowing or unknowing, where we've stepped outside of what God is doing, where he's trying to bring a world together. He's trying to take something that's broken and make it beautiful. Where he's trying to bring order instead of chaos, unity instead of disunity. We've all done things where we've stepped outside of that. And every one of those things, you could picture a windmill shirt in your closet for, a time when you did something you shouldn't have. Does Jesus still love you? Yes, 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 yes. He does. And we have an opportunity then to say, what does loving Jesus look like? Right? Okay, we're going to come back to Judah in a little bit, but right now let's jump to Joseph. And we don't have to jump very far because we were in Genesis 38. Now we're just going to go right where the story continues to Genesis 39. 39. In the very next chapter, chapter 39, Judah's younger half-brother Joseph, he's confronted with a decision. Am I going to continue following the sexual brokenness that I see that's been passed down from generation to generation that I see in my brothers, or am I going to choose a different path? Let's see what happens in chapter 39, uh, verses 19 through 20. Well, here's the backstory to where we land. Joseph was the firstborn son of Jacob's favorite wife, and everyone knew it. One day, Joseph's father sent Joseph to go check up on his brothers. That's a Great parenting tip right there. Oh, my goodness. And one of the, most of the brothers, most of the brothers say, there's Joseph. Let's kill him. And Judah, this is, remember, chapter 39 now, not chapter 38. Judah, having, starting to learn some lessons, says, all right, let's at least, let's just sell him into slavery instead of killing him. So that at least there's improvement because he was going to torch his daughter-in-law, right? So we're seeing movement here. Let's sell him into slavery instead. Joseph was then purchased by an influential Egyptian named Potiphar. God was with Joseph, and Joseph became the kind of leader that every manager, supervisor, and CEO dreams of. Potiphar was able to eventually delegate full authority to Joseph to rule and to represent his household in his place. We're starting to see Genesis come back, where 
Joseph is coming under God. He's coming under authority. He's trying the best to live. He's bringing order from chaos. He's being trusted. Good things are happening. And, and then comes Potiphar's wife. And Joseph was cursed with being good looking. And she noticed that. And she said, we got a windmill, Joseph. And Joseph says, I can't do that. I would be dishonoring God. I'd be dishonoring your husband. I can't do that. Now, you would think, if you're going to make back-to-back stories that you're going to be passed on for generation to generation, in 38, look at Judah. He was naughty. Bad things happened. Look at Joseph. He was good. Good things happened. Joseph does the right thing. She says, it was him. It was him who was trying to seduce me. Potiphar comes in. He hears this. He doesn't even bother to find out whether or not this is true. And this is where we come to. Genesis 39, 19 through 20. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, as soon as... Jumping to judgment, you guys, be careful. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were, confined. And he was there in prison. He does the right thing, and he ends up in prison. Joseph earned, I mean, Joseph Judah earned the windmill shirt. Joseph did not earn the prison uniform. There are times this is going to happen in our lives. We do the right thing, and in this fallen world, bad things happen. Can anyone testify to that? Yeah? Yeah. This happens. Most of us have prison uniforms in our closet, too. Those times where we tried our best to do the right thing, and bad things happened. When those times happen, remember there's a God who sees. There's a God who sees. (laughs) And he's committed to bringing good from those things. He can work all things for good. God turns Joseph's prison sentence into a networking opportunity that eventually lands Joseph in the number two position in the Egyptian empire by age 30. Not bad, fast tracking for Joseph, right? Can God work all things for good? Yes, he can. In fact, not only was this for Joseph's good, Joseph ends up saving countless lives because of the wisdom and advice that God gives him. And let's look at the language that's used to describe Joseph's authority at the beginning of the, or that his authority as the book of Genesis draws to an end. Let me actually say that in a way that makes sense. Let me try that again, all right? Look at the language that's used to describe Joseph's authority as the book of Genesis draws to the end. It echoes the language that we used at the beginning. Here's what Pharaoh says to Joseph. He says, you shall be over my house and over all my people. Shall, they shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off of his hand, this, this symbol of power, and he hands it to Joseph. And he actually puts it on Joseph's hand, it says. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus, he set Joseph over the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I'm Pharaoh. And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot 
in all the land of Egypt. So here we are now nearing the end of Genesis. And we're starting to see what we saw at the beginning. We're getting close to where we started. Joseph now is making wise decisions that are aligned with truth. He is stewarding. He's leading well. And the things happening around him are good. He's bringing order from chaos. He's preserving life in the face of death. And he's doing so under the rule of a greater king whose authority he represents. Lives are being saved. A broken family is being restored. Prophecies are being fulfilled. Can God work all things for good? Yes. Yes. And this verse that we find in the last chapter of Genesis doesn't just summarize the story of Joseph and his brothers. It summarizes the entire book when it says in Genesis 50, verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. As Genesis comes to a close for at least one moment in time, it's good. It's good. Joseph is ruling and representing well. Judah is also a changed man. Take a look. Chapters 42, 43, 44, you start to see Judah is changing as well, using his influence, his power for good. As the book of Genesis comes to a close, again, as I said, at least for this moment, things are good. But then what happens? That's Genesis. Genesis closes. We open up Exodus. Exodus chapter 1. What happens? Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, forgets what Joseph had done. And now it's not just Joseph in slavery. Who's in slavery? All of the children of Israel. Which then begs the question, is our work in vain? When we do have those signet ring moments and we have the ability to make a decision and we make a good one and good things are happening, is it all in vain? Because it can all just be undone. Never forget there's a God who sees and he is at work bringing good from all things for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. All things. Not just those shining signet ring moments but also our mistakes in windmills, our painful prisons that people sentence us to. Before we close this morning, I want to quickly, I promise to circle back to Judah, let's do that. The Joseph story ends with good at the end of Genesis. What about Judah? Take a look at this. The same Judah that got his daughter-in-law pregnant, but his excuse was, I thought she was a prostitute, so, you know. You know. That was his excuse. That same man receives this blessing from his father at the end of his life, Judah, the blessing came, your brother shall praise you. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is loaded language that foreshadows two things. One, it foreshadows that there will be human kings coming from his line including King David. This is also, language is loaded, it's also inferring one of these kings will eventually be an eternal king, that coming Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And as we open up the New Testament, we see that Tamar is just one of many scandals in the line of Jesus. In the line of Jesus. Jesus stepped into a mess that was not of his making. 
and he began doing God's work in it. The same Jesus who stepped into our mess will come again. And as we bring this series to a close, I brought back a chart on the back of your notes that we introduced very early on in this series where you can see, compare the beginning in Genesis with what we see in the end in the last book of the Bible, which is Revelation. In this between time, between the time where it was good and between the time when it will all be good again, we have choices to make with what we do with that. And so much of those choices involve will we choose to seek the good and believe in a God who works all things for good. Every one of us has a closet full of windmill shirts. Shirts that, rem- oh, that should probably give you the last set of blanks here for the series. We all, we all have a closet full of windmill shirts, some prison uniforms, and maybe even a few signet rings. What do yours remind you of? Everyone's got the closet full of windmill shirts. Shirts that remind us of times where we did things that weren't in line with the good, as God defines it. What kind of message do you want to send with yours? Do you want to send the message of, hey, I can do whatever I want. God still loves me? Or do you want to send the message of, wow, there is a God who loves me in the face of all that I've done. How can I not offer my life in response to the one who laid down his life for me? How can I not do that? And I'm going to trust to believe that God can take these broken moments of mine and work all things for good. Everyone's got the prison uniforms in their closet too, clothes that remind us of the time when it wasn't our fault. And it'd be really easy to look at that prison uniform and to say, here is more evidence that there is not a God because if there was a God, why did he let this happen to me? Instead of saying, there is a God in this world who has called it as it is. It is broken. It's broken. But he's here in the brokenness. And he's going to work all things for good, even this. Some of us even have a few signet rings, reminders of those times where God gave us great success. What kind of message do you want to send with yours? Look at my ring. Look what I did. Bow to me. Or do we want to say, look what God did and allowed me to be a part of. And whether or not it works out the way I had hoped, God will work all things for good. That's where Genesis lands, where God is working all things for good. And I was so excited when, uh, when I looked online, I saw what song the band was closing with this week. It's this song that we haven't sang here yet. And I'm going to invite the worship band to come up. And I was so excited. And I said, don't change it this week. Make sure you do this song. You know, because we're always kind of, even sometimes to the last minute, even thinking, you know, what, what one we want to go with. I'm like, sing this song. Because after 11 weeks in going on this journey, what a great place to land. So we're going to invite you to proclaim these words, even though they're going to be new to many of you. It's an easy song to jump into. It is a song that proclaims this great truth that God is there through it all and he works all things for good. So why don't you stand? We're going to sing this song. Let me pray over you before we do. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for not just revealing and saying you're a God that works all things for good, but for demonstrating it since the beginning of humanity.